0: Last week, we looked at um, how Moses was born to a Hebrew mother, a Levite mother and father. Uh, They were slaves. They were oppressed. There, There was a command from Pharaoh that all of the Hebrew baby boys should be thrown into the Nile and killed. Yet his mother saved him, putting him in a basket and sending him down the river, and was found by a daughter of Pharaoh who adopted him. So we we looked at a little bit how Moses was a man of of two worlds. We're going to look more at the life of Moses this morning. So join me now as we read uh, Exodus 2, starting in verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, "'Why do you strike your companion?' He answered, "'Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian?' Then Moses was afraid and thought, "'Surely the thing is known.' When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses." And Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, we ask that you would grant us your Holy Spirit, we may understand, believe, and obey that which you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. Moses was God's chosen means for deliverance. Of Israel from Egyptian slavery. From the time he was born, he was a man of two worlds. He didn't really belong in either of them. He struggled to fit in. But it is through this man that God would work wonders to show his mighty power. The story of Exodus really is not the story of mighty Moses. It's the story of a mighty God using broken Moses. Moses struggled to fit in. He did not really understand what his role was going to be, and he needed to grow a lot to meet this tremendous destiny that God had for him of leading Israel out of slavery. This would be a lot of pressure on him, and he had a lot of lessons to learn before he was really ready to be used by God to deliver his people. We can see that even as a young man, Moses had a desire for justice. He had a, a concern for the, the oppressed, just not a lot of wisdom in how to go about accomplishing freedom for people, how to protect people. He needed to grow. He needed to mature and able, and able to really see justice truly done for his people. He needed to be tempered. In other words, into what God wanted him to be. You can see the the stuff is there, the potential is there, but it needs to be shaped, needs to be molded. In the first few verses here, we see that Moses wanted to defend his people. We're told that when he had grown up, he encountered injustice being done to his people that he could not ignore. Imagine what it would be like to be Moses. We never get the the sense that he thought he was Egyptian. He seems to have known that he was a Hebrew. And he is adopted by the oppressor of his people. Imagine what that's like. One of my good friends um, was adopted uh, by a, a race that is not his own. And his whole life, he talked about how it was difficult for him sometimes because people of the race that he actually is would Talk to him about their own cultural background, he didn't know what they were talking about because that's not actually his world. And yet people from his actual adopted world viewed him as an outsider because he didn't look like them. And so he always talked about how he often felt like a man of, of two worlds, that he didn't look like the world that he actually identified with. And maybe some of you can identify with what, what that's like, existing in a world that you don't super feel like you belong in. How much more so for a man like Moses? Not only is he in a cultural background that's a little different from his race, it is an oppressive environment where he is the, the racial category of a, an enslaved people. And yet he's living among the oppressing race of the Egyptians. Very difficult for this man to do this. Now, in, in the book of Acts, Exodus doesn't tell us what age he is. It just says when he had grown up. In Acts chapter 7, this is a, a fun passage, by the way. Uh, Stephen is uh, the first martyr that we have in Scripture uh, in the in the Christian uh, time. Uh, and he is able to give this defense of Christianity before the religious establishment. And he goes through the whole uh, hitting highlights of Israel's history. And part of this history, he talks about Moses. And in verses uh, 23 through 25, we read this about Moses. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his people, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand if you read the whole passage in context, it's it's very clear that he's drawing a parallel between Jesus, who came to his own people to deliver them from bondage, and were rejected, and was rejected, and Moses, who also was trying to deliver his people and do something good for them, but was rejected and mistreated. And so we learn from that passage that Moses was about 40 years old when this took place. That's not what most people would call a young man he's not a kid he's a, he's a full-grown man and yet he is still needing to grow a bit it seems that he wanted to observe for himself what was really going on with the hebrews we don't know exactly how he felt growing up knowing he was a hebrew raised in the egyptian royal court We can only speculate on what that would be like, but we're told that the reason that he went out is to observe what his people's lives were like. He wanted to look on their burdens. And he encounters this very difficult thing to witness. He witnesses an Egyptian beating one of his own people. Now, it's interesting, at this point, you could make an argument for why he would identify more with the Egyptian. That was who he was raised around. Maybe he could make an argument and say, well, he probably deserved it. This Hebrew was probably slacking. And he's—you know the Egyptian's got to maintain proper discipline, so of course he probably deserves the beating. But the Egyptian is not the one that Moses identified with. He identified with the Hebrew. And it's emphasized by saying one of his people. He probably does not know this man. He's probably a stranger, but he is one of his people. And so he acts. He identified with the Hebrew instead of the Egyptian, showing where his loyalty really lay. Now he looks around. And one, there's two ways that you can really read this. Does he look around to make sure no one's going to see him attack the Egyptian? Or does he look around like, is anyone seeing this? Is anyone going to intervene? Look at this. He's going to kill this poor guy. You could read it either way, but in any case, he doesn't see anyone else around. Either he doesn't see any witnesses, or he doesn't see anyone to intervene, and so he acts for himself. The text just says he struck down the Egyptian. We're not told, is there a weapon involved? In some of the theatrical uh, portrayals of this, there's like a whip that he grabs out of his hand and they struggle and he ends up uh, killing the man. We're not told anything about that. It's possible even that he just killed him with his bare hands. Uh, We don't even know if it was his intention to kill the man or not. Maybe his intention was, I just want to stop this uh, beating. Or maybe his purpose was, maybe he was overcome by rage and he wanted to kill this Egyptian. In either case, the result is the same. He has a dead body and blood on his hands and he hides the body in the sand, thinking, okay, I've covered myself. Apparently, though, the Hebrew man that was saved is not able to keep secret what was done, and he's the only other one that could have told people. Moses wouldn't have told anyone. The Egyptian could not tell anyone. Um, But word gets out. I don't believe that what we see here is... Moses trying to start an uprising. I don't think he's at this point trying to start a righteous war uh against the Egyptians. I think what he's really uh going through here is he sees an injustice. He's angry and he wants to do something. And so he just comes up with this idea, okay, I'm going to I'm going to act. I'm going to strike this man down. This is the first time that the word strike is mentioned. There's an interesting theme of striking in the book of Exodus, where Moses strikes this man down. Later on, God strikes um, Egypt with various plagues. Later on, Moses strikes the rock to bring water forth. You could actually make an argument that there's a theology of punching things um, in the Bible, and it's very strong in Exodus. Uh, So consider that next time you're thinking that theology is boring. Sometimes theology is striking things and making things happen. Is this a just act that Moses does here? You could argue both ways. In fact, um, Bible scholars have argued it both ways. John Calvin thinks, yes, he should have. He should have killed him. It's the right thing to do. Augustine says, no, he should not have killed him. He should have worked within the structure. This wasn't really doing anything good. Uh, it's interesting. Um, I would probably say no, but uh, not a hard no. Uh, I'm a very sympathetic no, I suppose you could say. Um, tough call. If you're, if you're in that position, what, what do you do? Is it possible to have stopped the beating without killing the man? We have no idea. We don't have enough information. But it does reveal his heart that he is deeply bothered by watching someone oppress someone else. He can't stand by and watch this beating. This is not something that he can live with. He sees this Hebrew just like himself, and he's got to act on his behalf. This is actually a good inclination, though. It's a good inclination that he does not just stand back and, and watch what's going to happen. He doesn't try to say, okay, well, let me, let me go and try to uh, talk to Pharaoh about this. He goes, okay, I see it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something right now. But it doesn't work out the way that he wanted. So he goes out the next day, and much to his consternation, he discovered that Hebrews are very capable of harming each other. They're very capable of striking one another and causing harm to one another. It would be incorrect, in other words, for him to assume violence is only something that the Egyptians do. No, his own people are very capable of hurting each other. And so he he goes to them, and and his question, you you can feel his confusion and his heart just breaking. Why do you strike your companion? Don't you see that you're you're brothers? Don't you see that you're on the same team, that you have a, a common enemy? Why are you doing this to each other? There are reasons here why you should not be fighting with each other. He wants to see his people be one. He wants to see them getting along. And we're not told why are they struggling? What are they fighting about? Is it something worth fighting about? Is it not something worth fighting about? I think there are very few circumstances in life where it's a good reason to fight. Uh, defending somebody else is one of those. But we don't know what the cause is here any more than we're told, why is the Egyptian beating the Hebrew? Only the fact of what was happening. The reality is that sin divides us. Sin is the cause of all this sort of struggle with one another. All miss treatment, all oppression is a result of sin. There's no such thing as a a fight where both people are righteous, are both doing what they should do. And the scornful reply of this Hebrew really reveals the sinful attitude. It captures it very well. What does he say? Who made you a prince or a judge over us? In other words, What gives you the right to tell me what to do? Why do you get to be the one who decides what's a worthwhile fight and what's not? I'll decide. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? What are you going to do about it? Who's going to stop me? That's a sinful attitude right there that captures very well what it's really like to be controlled by those sinful inclinations. We don't want people to tell us what to do, and we take it very personally, anyone who would tell us that what I'm doing is wrong. We see that every day. The essence of sin is rebellion against authority to tell us what's right and what's wrong. The reply scared Moses, not because he was afraid that this Hebrew was going to hurt him, But he thought, "Uh uh-oh, people know what I did. And he was right to be afraid because when Pharaoh heard about what had happened, he did seek to kill Moses. The Hebrew that he had saved must have been the one that that told people. So what does he do? He flees. He does not try to rally the troops and say, okay, guys, this is where it starts. We're making our stand. We're going to fight the Egyptians. Now he gets out. He flees. And he flees to Midian. The, Midian is a place that's southeast of, of Canaan. It's generally agreed to be a, a land of nomads. It's wilderness. It's not developed land. Egypt is a very settled land. There's cities, there's roads, there's canals, there's all sorts of irrigation systems. That It's, it's civilized. And he goes way out to where there is not that kind of infrastructure. There's not that kind of civilization. He flees to a land he has never been to to get away. Is Midian his uh, dream place to be? No, it isn't. It's the place where Pharaoh's power isn't. So he's just trying to escape. Does he have a great plan to maybe uh, get an army in Midian and, and lead the army to free his people no, he does not. He's just trying to survive at this point. hes I wouldn't call him a coward, though. He's a realist. He probably knows exactly how a slave rebellion would go. It would go with a lot of dead Hebrews. They don't have weapons. They don't have training. It's not going to work. And yet it is this place in Midian, this wilderness. If you've grown up in around civilization, to go live out where there's no development feels like the end of the world. How do I possibly survive in a place like this? And yet it is there that God develops him into the man that he needs to be. At the age of 40, Moses had the passion for justice for his people, but he was not ready to lead them. He lacked the maturity, to do what he needed to do. But most importantly, he lacked the faith in God to truly deliver Israel. This was not something that he was going to be able to do. The raise an army in Midian approach would not have worked. The raise up the uh, the slaves to have a slave rebellion would not have worked. It has to be a work of God to deliver them. So God brings him to this backwater, this in-the-middle-of-nowhere place to make him what he needs to be. So in in 16 through 22, we see God protecting and guiding Moses. He doesn't really have a, a good plan for what comes next, but God does in a way that he could never have foreseen. Moses did not know anyone in Midian. He's never been there before. He has no contacts. This must have seemed like the end of his life as he knew it. What's he going to do now? He had left behind the land that he knew. He had left behind everyone he had ever known. That's a lonely place to be for a man who knows loneliness pretty well as being the man between two worlds. And yet God had a plan for him. He was alive, but he didn't have anything to his name. He had no flocks. He had no tent. He had nothing. He sits beside a well. There's an interesting precedent, though, a solid history of meetings at wells that turned to be very momentous. We see this first in uh, Genesis chapter 24, where we have um, the servant of Abraham being sent to get Isaac a wife. And uh, he, he prays and he asks for God's direction and he, he prays that um, he would meet a young woman who would offer not only to draw water for him but also for his 10 camels that can each drink about 50 gallons. It's, uh, it's a lot of water. Um, and he prays and lo and behold, who should he meet but Rebecca? And so we read uh, about their meeting. Uh, behold, before he had finished speaking, this is him praying to the Lord, Behold, Rebekah, who had been born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And of course, it, it works out beautifully, and it's this beautiful love story. It all works out happily. Yay. Um, and then uh, Jacob, also on the run for his life, thinks his life is over, ends up at a well and meets the love of his life. In Genesis chapter 29, um, we read of, of uh, Jacob meeting Rachel. While he was still speaking with them, that's some shepherds that were there, uh, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Interesting parallels between this one this one. And Moses, because in both cases, remember in, with Jacob, the stone on the well's mouth was so big that they couldn't move it until a bunch of them came so that they could have a bunch of guys to help move this stone, but he moves it all by himself. And then Exodus, um, we don't know how many shepherds he fights off, but in both cases they do some sort of physical act of strength uh, to get the attention of, of the woman. And uh, they end up meeting their future wife. Now, the difference, of course, is that in Exodus, we have no hint that um, he was immediately in love with Zipporah. Um, Again, he sees an injustice. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs uh, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came, so male shepherds, other guys, came and drove the daughters away but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. He's the hero. He is the, the, uh, the man of mystery that comes in to rescue them. And they are excited. They're so excited that they don't even talk to him. They just run home to dad, tell him what happened. But it's a beautiful picture of him being their savior, of him stepping in and doing what they could not do. Wells have always been very important in the Middle East. Uh, They are the place where you have to go, uh, so they become places of meeting, but also places of strife like they were here. There's only so many ways to get water if you live in the wilderness. The shepherds know that, and having um, seven shepherdesses is uh, good, but also makes them... Vulnerable to male shepherds who aren't always the nicest of fellows, not always so gentlemanly to let the ladies go first. And so Moses steps in. We don't know a lot about the Midianite people. Um, we know a little bit. In Genesis 25, we read that they are uh, descendants of uh, Abraham's second wife, Keturah. One of uh, her sons' names was Midian. And so the Midianite people are distantly related to the Israelites, and they follow the same line of work. They're both shepherds. The Israelites were shepherds. The Midianites are shepherds. Whereas the Israelites had had a a settling aspect in Egypt, the Midianites never did. And so they were still nomadic. They were still uh, having their flocks, and they seem to still worship the God of Abraham. Now, there's a whole box of questions that I've always had about this time period in the worship of God. Because every once in a while, you'll meet people that are not Israelites that worship the Lord. And so I've always wondered, how widespread was the worship of the one true God? We have no idea. We we really have no way of, of measuring that. But it seems that this priest of Midian was a legitimate priest of the one true God, because we we see later on this priest of Midian, his father-in-law, actually giving Moses godly wisdom and giving glory to God for what he had done. So by all uh, accounts, he is a legitimate God worshiper. He worships Yahweh, Elohim. And these seven daughters become uh, an inroad for Moses to become part of this God-fearing family that they are relatives, but very, very distantly. Um, We're given no details about what this struggle looked like. It just says that he stood up and drove them away. Does that mean that he just stood up and said, hey, you guys, leave them alone? Or does that mean that he gets into an actual confrontation with them? We don't know. Um, I would tend to think that it would take a little bit more than standing up and saying, hey, you guys, be nice. but we really don't know. We don't know how many shepherds. I want to know all these things. I'm terribly interested, but we just have no idea. Um, But he stands up and he battles. it. Now, remember, Moses is a man who recently just killed a man with his bare hands. Uh, So perhaps he's a a formidable man. Alone though he is, he's not the guy to mess with in the wilderness at the well. You never know who that guy is, what he has done. But he stands up. He defends these, these women. And um, he showed a tremendous courage and a desire to defend the innocent. He doesn't owe them anything. He doesn't know them. He doesn't know what the stakes are. He doesn't know who these shepherds are. All he knows is he sees an injustice that is in his power to right, And so he does it. We're not told that he's motivated by love. He doesn't say anything about, and he saw Zipporah and just loved her, and so he had to fight for her honor. Nothing like that, just, I see these guys oppressing these women. I'm stepping up. He could not stand to see this abuse. Speaks very well of him. And so the the women come home, and they just say, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Why do they call him an Egyptian? He's probably dressed like an Egyptian, probably walks like an Egyptian, talks like an Egyptian. Probably seems super Egyptian. But he's not Egyptian. But they don't know that. They don't even know the man's name. Didn't even ask. They were too blown away. And he delivered them. That's the same words that that are used of God, delivering Israel out of Egypt. And so we have these these foreshadowings of rescuing Israel people out of oppression. And then you see Rule's consternation with his daughters. Then where is he? Why did you guys just leave him there? You didn't even ask him home to say thanks? Here's here's a meal? Come on, girls. Go get him. What are you doing? I thought I raised you better than that. And then the text again blanks a whole bunch of things that I wish it told us more of. Because it says, oh, uh, yeah, we had him over and then he married my daughter and they had a kid. Whoa, seems like you skipped a couple of things there. It's interesting, though, that um, it is here in the wilderness that Moses finally finds belonging. He finds a family that immediately welcomes him in. An interesting um, contrast to his own Hebrew people saying, Who made you judge over us? Are you going to kill me? Get away from me. And these people don't know him. Welcome him in. Say, come be part of our family. Interesting. Israelite people are the ones who have a hard time accepting their deliverer. It's the Israelites who don't recognize their salvation when they see it. This is actually a theme throughout Exodus, though. If you've read Exodus, you know that the Israelites are not the thankful people that they really should be. They often grumble against God and against Moses. They often had bad attitudes. And you see it right from the beginning here. And so he names his son Gershom. In Hebrew, the name literally means sojourner. You don't belong here. It's interesting uh, to question what is the foreign land that he's referring to here. I've been a sojourner in a foreign land could be understood to mean I'm not from Midian. I'm a sojourner. Or it could mean, I didn't belong in Egypt. I was a sojourner there. I was raised there. I didn't belong there. I'm a Hebrew. I tend to think that Moses always felt a lack of belonging everywhere he went. And he never even got to come home. He wanted to go into the, the promised land of Canaan. But God did not allow him to, and we'll get into why that is later. Um, But he seems to be a man always longing to be home, but never quite attaining it. Moses learned a lot while he was in Midian. He took up the family business. He learned about being a shepherd, what it means to care for sheep under his guidance. That's an important lesson that he's going to need as he's shepherding the people of Israel. There he also learns about what it means to be a father. Again, important lessons about disciplining in love, being patient and, and guiding, and what it means to be part of a large family. He marries into a family with seven daughters. He's got to learn how to navigate all of these sort of social dynamics, all these women with their husbands and children. These lessons are all going to be essential for him to lead Israel out. He doesn't know any of that. He doesn't know that God is preparing him even now, but God is guiding him. God is protecting him. God is preparing him for that next step. The narrative shifts back to Israel. See, if we, if we just stop there, you would get the impression and uh, Moses lived happily ever after with his wife Zipporah, And they had kids, and they were fulfilled, and everything was great. No, we're shifting right back to what are the Israelites doing? What is their life like? Moses is celebrating the life, the new life of his son. Pharaoh's dead. That Pharaoh who sought his life died. And yet... The people of Israel were still not free. They groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. We're given this picture that while Moses is being prepared, the people are being prepared in another way. They are increasingly ready for salvation. They are increasingly ready for deliverance. They are crying out, somebody, somebody help me. The king of Egypt that had sought uh, Moses' life was now dead, but the distress of the Israelites continued under their harsh slavery. They still needed a deliverer. Who will save them? But their groaning is not going on deaf ears. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This is a powerful picture. He's, he uses four words here. The the heard, the remember, the saw, the knew. And it alternates between sensory and cognitive. Why? Because it gives this very strong sense of intimacy. God is with his people in the midst of their pain and distress. He gets it. He knows what they're going through. He is not Going to let this go on forever. God understands what they are going through and will answer their cries for rescue. The people of Israel don't know the means of God's deliverance, is even now in Midian being prepared for that very task. But God knows, God saw, God heard, God knew there is a strong element that we need to remember of God remembering his covenant. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This isn't to say he forgot and then he remembered. It is that he is going to act in accordance with what he has said he would do. The covenant is the basis for why he will deliver them out of Egypt into the land of Canaan. There is a scholarly debate that has gone on in um, circles about in Exodus, if the Israelites had never been enslaved, would God had still brought them into Canaan or would they have just stayed there forever? Now, there's an absurd proposition there, of course, that um, part of the plan was the enslavement aspect. But let's leave that aside for a second. Would they have stayed there forever? No, they would not. You know why? Because the covenant promise was not, and I will give you the land of Egypt. The covenant promise was, I will give you the land of Canaan. And so God would have kept his promise no matter what. The difference is, if they had lived fat and happy in Egypt, they don't want to leave. They like it there. It's comfortable. There's food. There's civilization. There's all these fun things that we can take advantage of. But because they are in slavery, they are groaning. They want to get out. They are crying out, God, please get me out of here. Sometimes... It is those very difficult circumstances that are preparing you to really receive the incredible blessing that God has planned for us. Consider well the importance, the significance of God present with his people in the midst of their suffering. He sees, he hears, he knows. That is to say, you are not alone. In the midst of the struggle of life in a sinful world, it is very common to feel isolated, to feel like, oh, nobody gets what I'm going through. I'm alone here. No one, no one cares. The Bible teaches us something very different. The Bible teaches us that God hears our cries for help and he remembers his promises. He sees, he knows you are not alone. Life has seasons. Some of these seasons are really hard. And you wish, I wish I wasn't in this season. I'm all done. I'm all done. Let's go on to the next chapter, God. This is, this is enough. I can't, I can't do this anymore. God knows what he's doing. When you cry out to him, he will hear you. Even when life seems hopeless and there doesn't seem to be a way out, Guess who's got a way out? God. The Israelites were in a hopeless situation, and yet God was even then raising up, training a deliverer. God is present. God knows. Hope is not lost when our hope is in the Lord. Now, if your hope is in yourself, if you are stubbornly refusing to cry out to help, you may just stay in that pit for a long time until you're willing to look up and say, God, help me. Deliver me, O Lord. I can't do this. Sometimes all it takes is for us to look to him and cry out for his mercy. Suffering in this life is temporary. The rewards that God promises his people who trust in him, those rewards are eternal. Suffering in this life may seem to have no end, but the reality is, in the midst of all of that, there is freedom in Christ. Sometimes I, I feel like in the winter when it's you know really cold outside, you know when you go outside and your face hurts, and you go, I can't remember what it feels like to be warm. I think once I was warm, but I can't remember it. And even in my mind, the summer just seems so. Unreal. Winter doesn't last forever. The suffering that you have right now does not last forever. Look at the promises that God has that Jesus says to his followers in, in John chapter 10. This is one of my favorite passages, often quoted for good reason, and so John 10:9 through11, "I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved." And we'll go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You ha- you, are you tired of struggling all by yourself? Go through the door. Follow the good shepherd. He is the one who promises life abundantly. That is not just getting by. Thrive. That is trust in the Lord and receive all the goodness that he has for you. Jesus is the chosen deliverer for all who cry out to God for help. Moses delivered them from slavery. Jesus delivers us from doom, condemnation before God for our sins. He is the one who... Gives us true life. We trust in him. He is the good shepherd. Follow him and have life. There is salvation and abundant life. He has secured our new life through the giving of his own life for his people. This is the wonderful promise of all who trust in him. Life abundantly. Freedom from oppression. The timing of deliverance is God's alone, but the reality of deliverance for those who cry out to God is assured. There is no question of if God will keep his promises. He will keep his promises. He will do what he has said he would do. Trust in him. Sometimes those seasons of, of struggle are what God is using to work in your life, to develop you into what you need To be. Romans 5, 1 through 5, we read this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So you pause there and you go, Yes, I have hope, I have life, I have peace with God. Yes. Great, I want it. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What? Rejoice in our suffering? Don't you mean no sufferings? I like that plan better. we just do no sufferings? We have peace with God so we never struggle? That is not the promise. A lot of Christians get very mad at God because they thought the deal was, follow me and never struggle. That wasn't the promise. This is why it's very important to read the contract, so to speak. What am I actually getting myself into? If the expectation is never suffer, that's not it. But it is, you will never be alone and the suffering has a purpose. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has given whom who he has given to us. That is the great promise that our suffering is developing us, is working in us, making us who we need to be, conforming us to the image of Christ, teaching us to hope in God, and that hope does not disappoint. Imagine the clay, and the potter is you know, spinning it on that wheel, and he's pushing it, and he's shaping it, and he's doing things, and the clay's going, why are you doing this to me? Why are you pushing on my sides like that? Why are you putting your hand down my throat and pushing on me? I don't like it. And yet, the potter knows what he's doing, and he is working even through that pressure that's not a lot of fun to make us what we need to be. The shaping process that God uses is often uncomfortable, and it often goes on longer than we might like, but we can be assured that it is not in vain. Moses needed to be shaped by God. He needed this time in the wilderness, this time of uncertainty to be developed into the man that God would use to deliver Israel. You and I have lots of things that need to be shaped. God is shaping you even now into what he wants you to be. He needed Moses needed to be broken down before God could remake him to be what he needed to be. And sometimes this is exactly what God needs to do to us. Sometimes the very best thing that could happen to you is to be broken down is to get to that point where you go, God, help me. I don't know what to do. I can't go on the way I've been going. I need you. It is the hardest thing in life, but sometimes it is the best thing that can happen to us because God loves his people and he knows what it takes to make us what we need to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can trust in you, that you know what we are going through, that you never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we thank you that you even use sufferings to develop us into who we need to be. Lord, would you give us endurance? Lord, would you work in us character? Lord, would you give us hope in you? May we cling to you, crying out to you, O Lord, for deliverance. Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign in all things. Lord, we thank you that our highest good is not our comfort. Our highest good is not getting all the things we think that we need, but our highest good is trusting in you and allowing you to work in us. Lord, would you guide our steps? Would you teach us, O Lord, to trust in you in good times and in hard times? In Jesus' name, amen.